Before turning to the passage this morning, I want to say that we are nearing summer. Um, People are tired. We're coming to the end of the school year. Soon you're going to say already it's happening with some. Here in spring, it's time for a break, and you'll get in the car, go off with your family, people will travel, and so forth. I want to... uh, To say that's a very good thing, Uh, I certainly encourage that, but it is never, never look at summer as a time for taking a break from the Lord Jesus Christ and from public and private worship. I think that the summertime can be a time of danger in which we let down our guard spiritually. So, word to the wise from your pastor, just let's be cautious to maintain our spiritual disciplines, to keep before the Lord during the summer months as well as during the school year. Now let's open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel as we continue looking through, working through Matthew. We've come to chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. In chapter 23, the Lord Jesus Christ is dealing with the Pharisees and the woes that he pronounces upon them. We will not be looking at the woes this morning. It would be too much at one time. But I do want to point out, even before we read, he is absolutely scathing. The Lord Jesus Christ is breathing fire. It's it's an incredibly serious passage in which the Lord Jesus Christ is anything but politically correct. Powerful, powerful words of judgment. Let's pray. Our Father, before reading these words, these introductory words to the woes that are pronounced by our Savior upon the Pharisees. May we have hearts that are open to the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to this knowledge that comes only through the Holy Spirit. And we ask that you will give to us a clear view of who Jesus is and what he has done for sinners and how careful we are to be in the hearing and loving of truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, beginning with verse 1 through verse 12. This is the word of God. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They do, not, they, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We then come to this 23rd chapter of Matthew's Gospel in which there is confrontation. A confrontation between Jesus Christ and the Pharisees. Between our Lord Jesus and the religious establishment of his day. 
And you will notice that it comes after the question that we looked at last time in Matthew. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, this is the question that exposes the heart. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That's the question that opens the heart to show whether you are are on God's side or not, whether you love the truth or not, whether you understand who Christ is or not. This is the question that creates controversy. It created it then, it creates it now. Who is Jesus? Whose son is he? It's because this question has been pushed to the forefront in Nigeria that within these last few weeks, 300 Christians have given their lives for the Savior. Did you hear that? 300 believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have given their lives for the Savior because this is the question they push to the front. Who is Jesus? Do you know? They said to their Islamic neighbors. Jesus' language is merciless toward false teachers who lead the flock astray. If you read through this chapter, you will see that he uses language about them like this. He calls them fools, hypocrites, blind guides, sons of hell. And it's very obvious that double doom awaits the religious teacher with all the training and background and tradition at his disposal, who nevertheless in his blindness fails to recognize who Jesus is. And so I ask the question again, do you recognize who Jesus is? Do you know him? Have you put your trust in him? Have you fallen before him on your face within your heart? Is Christ all to you? It's the question of every age. It's the question that faces every generation. Do you know who Jesus is? So the Lord Jesus Christ brings public warning. He brings indictments. Now, he's spoken to his disciples about the Pharisees all along, but he's spoken to them privately. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, he's told them. But now he is bringing indictments publicly before all to hear, before the Pharisees themselves. And he describes for us here the features of false teachers. And if you are one of those who says, this is not so important, I really have to turn this off, let me counsel you not to do that. You turn it on. You really need to hear this. For if there were false teachers in Jesus' day, there are false teachers in our day. Indeed, they are increasing, yes, even within the professing church of Jesus Christ, and we need to know how to recognize them. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us all of the characteristics of false teachers, but he tells us many of them, and we need to know what they are. But there's something else that begins here in this chapter that goes all the way through that's very important to you and me, very significant for us, and that is another theme, and that is the theme of hypocrisy. The theme of hypocrisy, saying one thing, doing another, believing one thing and yet acting not on your principles, or believing falsehood and acting in a way that is contrary to the truth. So the first thing we want to do as we come to this chapter then, these verses, is to look at the features of false teachers, the features of false teachers. And the Lord Jesus gives four features of false teachers in these verses. The first feature of false teachers is that false teachers preach without authority. False teachers preach without authority. And so he says in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now the verb that's used here actually is cause to sit. Put it another way, they seated themselves. 
That's Jesus' point. They have seated themselves on Moses' seat. They have no authority to do that. They have no right to do that. They are not called of God to do that. And Jesus' point is just that. They are not God sent. It may be that this is the religious establishment. These are the people who are in leadership, but they are not sent by God. They have no authority for their teaching. And had they understood Moses, they would have understood the Christ. Had they really understood Moses, they would acknowledge Jesus. Had they understood Moses, they would have bowed before the Lord. Had they understood Jesus, they would have been done with their hypocrisy, and they would have said, Lord, save me from my sins. But they did not understand Moses. They did not preach what the word of God said. They preached what they wanted the word of God to say. And so there are these false teachers, and I think we can learn this as a permanent principle. If a man is not preaching the Lord Jesus Christ, and I mean the Christ of the Bible, if a man is not preaching the Christ of the Bible, he is not sent by God. Now back there in Jeremiah 14, the passage that our pastor McDonald has read to us this morning, did you notice that the prophet said, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. And it didn't stop then. It continues today. False teachers who are teaching what they want the Bible to say, not what the Bible says, False teachers who preach without authority. Now, it's extremely important that when a minister preaches, it's important, for example, in the Presbyterian Church in America, that men are formed for gospel ministry, that they believe they are called internally, that the people of God recognize that call externally by the gifts that God has given, that there are examinations and preparations and that we are under the authority of a presbytery, but all of that can happen and still a man stand in a pulpit and not preach Jesus Christ or believe the truth. And so we must be discerning. False teachers preach without God's authority, and any man who does not preach the gospel, any man who mingles works with the gospel, Uh, Any man who denies these fundamental issues of who Jesus is and what he has come to do is a false teacher. The Pharisees were false teachers, preaching without authority. Second feature of false teachers is that false teachers preach, but they do not practice. They preach, but they do not practice. Verse 3, so practice and observe whatever they tell you but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. Now we know from other scriptures that the Lord Jesus is not saying that everything they said was right, so listen to all that they say and then just don't do what they practice because their practice is false. No, we know that they taught many wrong things. The point of the Lord Jesus Christ here is that they teach many things that are right, but they don't live correctly. Now, God's word is God's word even when it's spoken by Balaam's ass. It doesn't matter who preaches it or who says it. It's God's word. If it's true, it's true. Insofar as they speak truth, follow them, but do not do as they do. What an indictment. What a precursor to the judgment. What an awful thing to come from the Lord Jesus Christ from his mouth, the one who will sit upon the throne in the last day and bring judgment upon false teachers to say 
You've said many right things, but you have not lived according to the right things that you have said. What an awful thing to say to a teacher. Now, no leader is altogether consistent. We know that. But all true teachers have this attitude. Lord, I long to be consistent with my profession. I want my inside and my outside to correspond. But wait a minute. That's not just for teachers, is it? It's extraordinarily important for those who are going to teach God's people, but it's not just for teachers, is it? It's essential for you. It's important for you. It's not just for the teacher. This is also the attitude of the person who is really listening to the truth. The person who is really hearing the gospel will say, Lord, I recognize my failings, but I long for my heart and my actions to correspond. I long to grow in grace. But oh, the double judgment on the teacher who speaks one way and lives another way. The Apostle Paul speaks of false teachers in 1 Timothy 4, and he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And so the Apostle Paul points to the insincerity of the heart and to a seared conscience on the part of many a false teacher in this time between the ascension of Christ and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord Jesus gives to us a third feature of false teachers in this passage. And the third feature of false teachers is this, and I think this is the most important of all. False teachers promote works righteousness. False teachers promote works righteousness. Verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They put heavy loads on men's shoulders, but they will not lift one finger to help lighten the load, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what are those burdens? Do you remember when the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest? He's talking about the Pharisees. You are laden with the works righteousness requirements of the Pharisees. That's what he's talking about in this passage. What is the heavy load? That heavy load are the works by which we vainly think that God will accept us. And we come before the law of God and we attempt to offer works so that God will accept us. And the law of God just says, give me more. I want more. My appetite for your works is simply voracious. More, 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 more. Bring it on. Give me the work and I'm never satisfied. And the curse just gets deeper and broader and bigger and your guilt gets heavier. That's the law of God. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. Obedience to the law, so that you might be justified, so that God might accept you, accept you. But there has never been a person accepted in God's presence by obedience to the law, and there is no person, none but the Lord Jesus Christ, who has ever been able to keep the law of God with perfection. And so the law says more, your load of guilt gets heavier, and these false teachers have no salvation from guilt themselves, and so they delight in adding to the burden of other sinners who are guilty. All false teachers do this. I do not know of a single exception. 
All of those who begin to mingle grace and works as a means of justification do this. All the cults do this. Every one of them will do this. And all false religions do this. Now look, beware. Because what we're hearing out there in our culture today is that it doesn't matter what your religious perspective is. We even have some, quote, Christian teachers who are saying, you can believe in Jesus, but don't you see when someone believes in Allah, he's really believing in the same God, and in the end, he's going to the same place. These are just different roads to the Christian God. But my friend, Allah is not God. He is not the same God as the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God of truth. The God of the Bible is the living and true God. The God of the Bible is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triune God, one God in three persons. Allah is not God. And if you look at Islam, what you find is that Islam is simply another religion of works, placing upon people's shoulders burdens that they cannot bear. How sad it is when I hear someone say, this is a good religion and all is fine. You'll end up in heaven no matter what religion you take, what course you take. Every religion, every one of them teaches salvation by works. You need Christ, who alone can save you from your sins. And so these false teachers teach works righteousness. And feeling no need of grace, they offer no gracious gospel. Do you remember the response of the Apostle Paul to this sort of teaching? This was the issue in the church of Galatia. He wrote to the church of Galatia because the Judaizers were teaching Christ plus. Christ plus works in order that we might be accepted by God. And the Apostle Paul says, you'd better watch out. That is a false gospel. And in the very opening chapter, the Apostle Paul says... I am astounded that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema esto. Let him be damned. Again, not politically correct, is it? Doesn't fit the the tolerance of our age, does it? But that's what Paul the Apostle said, and that's what Jesus is saying to us in this passage. Beware of self-righteousness, my friend. Beware of those loads that men can place upon you, those loads of guilt so that, so that you do not understand grace. As J.C. Ryle put it, nothing so blinds the eyes of our souls to the beauty of the gospel as the vain, delusive idea that we are not so ignorant and wicked as some, and that we have got a character which will bear inspection. Happy is that man who has learned to feel that he is wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. To see that we are bad is the first step to being really good. To feel that we are ignorant is the first step to saving knowledge. And so the Pharisees only paid lip service to sin. They never understood the depth of it, the depth of depravity, what sin deserves. They had no true view of the heart, and so they never saw their need of grace. They never saw their need of a perfect righteousness to stand before the judgment seat on the great day. 
Do you see that? Do you understand that apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be unable to stand at the day of judgment? Do you understand that you need the imputed righteousness of Christ? You see, there's a robe, a wondrous, wondrous robe, The loom upon which that robe has been woven was the cross of Jesus Christ. The strings of that robe are the obedience of Jesus Christ and the payment of his penalty against us for our sins. His sufferings and his death and his blood have drenched every thread of that robe so that when you, by grace, through faith in Jesus, put on that righteous robe, You are seen as covered in scarlet splendor. And the Lord, looking at you, sees the perfection of his Son and accepts you as if you were Jesus Christ himself. Accepts you, yes, as truly righteous in union with Jesus Christ. Do you have that robe? Do you even know you need that robe? Every false religion denies it. Jesus Christ preaches it and teaches it. And so you need Jesus' blood to cleanse your guilt, the garment of his righteousness to cover you, so that you may stand before him in perfection. Get it down. Every false teacher teaches works righteousness. It may be subtle, it may be difficult to see, but it's there. Every false teacher teaches it. But there's a fourth characteristic of false teachers that Jesus preaches in this passage, False teachers feign piety. They have a put-on piety. Look at verses 5 through 7. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So they wore phylacteries, and they made them very, very visible. These, these boxes in which were placed the, the scroll of the law. And they would wear them on their foreheads or on their arms so that everybody could see them. They wanted them to be really big. So you had this big box on your head so people would think you're pious. Remember, this is a different day, and people would actually say, look how pious that man is. Look at the phylactery that he's wearing. And they wore tassels on their robes. Well, that was according to the law. God told the Jew that he was to wear tassels on the robe. But they wore very long tassels on their robes. So that you'd see this guy coming down the road. Everybody had tassels. Hey, look at this guy. He has long tassels. He must be a very, very pious man indeed. And then they wanted places of honor at great dinners. And they wanted to sit as close as possible to the law scrolls in the synagogue. And they sought personal honor. So they loved to be called rabbi. Now remember, rabbi doesn't simply mean teacher. It means master. More than that, in Jesus' day, it had the the sense of exalted one. So they wanted to be called exalted in the eyes of people. Their concern was to be seen. They were self-serving. And how much personal empire building today follows this pattern. But a true minister of God's word learns that he cannot be faithful to Christ and live for the good opinions of others. As a matter of fact, the Christian must learn that you must not live for the good opinions of others. 
but to honor the Lord Jesus Christ in your decisions. True piety, as Calvin put it, is the joining together of reverence and the love of God. And what the Pharisees missed was true piety. They had a feigned piety, a put-on piety. They wanted to be seen by others, but they were never concerned to join reverence for God and love for God. And so from this we learn, and learn it well, bad theology comes from a bad heart. False theology comes from a false heart. The bad teaching of the Pharisees came from the bad heart of the Pharisees. And a true heart may not have it all right. Who does? A true heart may not have it all right, but he longs to have it all right, and he is teachable. Why? Because true piety combines reverence for God and love for God. Now those are the features of false teachers given by our Lord Jesus. Then he gives us features of true teachers or true spiritual leaders. And I'm going to mention two that he brings to the fore. I want you to note these emphases are emphasis, an emphasis upon the heart. The first feature of a true spiritual leader is that he is not self-serving. Look at verses 8 through 10. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greater among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is not saying here that you should never use titles for ministers or for ruling elders or deacons. Indeed, we are told that we should respect our leaders in many places in the Bible. The Apostle Paul uses the word teacher in the pastoral epistles, and in another place he actually calls himself a father. Now, you need to get the point. Again, Rabbi had the idea of exaltedness. The false teachers were saying, look at me. See how pious I am. Fall before me. Acknowledge my greatness. And the true spiritual leader is unconcerned with those things or is learning to be. But there's another feature of the true spiritual leader. True spiritual leaders seek to serve the flock. Verses 11 and 12, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Lord Jesus Christ, back in chapter 20, verse 28, has already taught his disciples that he came, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That he came into this world to die for sinners and give his life. And then he tells us, the servant is not greater than his master. So how do you know if a man is a true teacher of God? Well, first of all, because he exalts Christ in his teaching. That's first. I mean the Christ of the Bible in his teaching. That's always first. And let me give to you this rule of thumb. If sometimes you hear something you wonder, is that, is that true or false? Maybe you're not immediately prepared to go to Scripture passages and search it out. You just need to make 
uh, a judgment on, on the matter? Am I hearing something that is true? Ask yourself this question. Does it exalt God or man? Does it put the crown on the head of Christ or upon the head of man? Does it put the diadem in the hand of Jesus or in the hand of man? If it exalts Christ, puts the crown on his head, the diadem in his hand, it's the truth. If it doesn't, it's not. So he exalts Christ, who is a true teacher. But also, you know who is a true teacher because he stands for the truth against the tide, just as Jesus is doing in this passage. And you know a true teacher by how he lives. Now again, I'm not talking about perfection. But you can see a consistency and faithfulness in the man's life. And you know a true teacher because of his longing to use his gifts to serve his flock. Well, that's what Jesus teaches about the features of false teachers, the features of true spiritual leaders. Now let's draw some implications. I had a long list, but I've narrowed it to three. Let me give you three implications. The first implication is discernment. And I'm talking about you as well as Pastor McDonald and myself and the elders. Discernment. You are called to be discerning, people of God. False teachers are rarely, as J.C. Ryle says, they are rarely open vendors of poison. So you can say, oh, that guy's a false teacher. He is a vendor of poison. No, usually they're angels of light. They're hard to recognize. You are called to be discerning. Back in the 1920s and 30s, when higher critical views of the Bible and liberal views began to infiltrate every major denomination in our country, every one of them, every denomination, every one of them was overcome by the liberalism and the German rationalism and the unbelief, every one of them, every one of them. Men such as J. Grussom Machen stood against men like Harry Emerson Fostick. And Machen published his great Christianity and liberalism to show that Christianity and liberalism were different religions. But so undiscerning was the man in the pew. So undiscerning were the ruling elders. So undiscerning many a minister. That when Harry Emerson Fostick stood in a pulpit and said, I believe in the deity of Christ and I believe Jesus is God, they took it at face value. When if you knew anything about the man's theology, he had a very low view of God and a very high view of man. And he was simply saying that Jesus is God in the sense that we all are. Just false theology, false teaching, and that kind of thing swept away the great denominations. So that the denomination that we left in order to become the PCA now has men in it who deny that Jesus is God and that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, that he was born of a virgin, much less all of the other wondrous truths to which we are to hold in our confession of faith. And the thing that really gets my craw and ought to get yours is that the denominations were taken away by men who subscribed to the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. They lied. But if the people in the pew had been discerning, if they had read the word, if they knew the theology of the church, 
it would never have happened. So does that man apply the acid test of God's word? Does he long to use his gifts for the flock? Does he exalt Jesus Christ? J.C. Ryle addressed this in the 19th century in England. Listen to some of what he said. Now, this is an Anglican bishop who's a thorough evangelical. He's seeing, he's seeing Anglo-Catholicism taking over the denomination and liberalism taking over the Church of England. And he says these things. Learn from them. In the first place, let us not be surprised at the rise and progress of false doctrine. It is a thing as old as the old apostles. It began before they died. They predicted that there would be plenty of it before the end of the world. It is wisely ordered of God for the testing of our grace and to prove who has real faith. Secondly, says Ryle, in the next place, let us make up our minds to resist false doctrine and not be carried away by fashion and bad example. Let us not flinch, because all around us, high and low, rich and poor, are swept away like geese in a flood before a torrent of semi-popery. Let us be firm and stand our ground. Let us resist false doctrine and contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. Let us not be ashamed of showing our colors and standing out for New Testament truth. Let us not be stopped by the cry of controversy. The thief likes dogs that do not bark and watchmen that give no alarm. The devil is a thief and a robber if we hold our peace and do not resist false doctrine. We please him and displease God. And thirdly, Ryle says, in the next place, let us try to preserve our old Protestant principles of the church. He said, get in the 39 articles and read them. And I would say, get into the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms and read them and know them and be able to repeat the doctrines and love them from your heart. And then finally, he says this, let us make sure work of our own personal salvation. Let us seek to know and feel that we ourselves are saved. The day of controversy is always a day of spiritual peril. Men are apt to confound orthodoxy with conversion. Yet mere earnestness without knowledge and mere head knowledge of Protestantism alike save none. Let us never forget this. Wise words from a great and true teacher of God's holy word. And so you are called to be discerning. Now this is Mother's Day. And you know I don't preach Mother's Day sermons or Father's Day sermons. I think it's great that you do something special for your mom. I hope you are. I'm trying to show my wife uh, some, some special, special uh, care. I hope I do that all the time. I want to. But here's a Mother's Day message for you. Do you want the PCA? Do you want Covenant Presbyterian Church when your daughter is a mother? and her daughter is a mother, to believe the gospel? Do you? Then teach them the truth. Catechize them. Help them to love the truth. Moms, dads, we're responsible to teach them how to be discerning. And I think that that is a splendid implication from this passage. But let me give you another implication, another application. We are called upon by this passage to receive a warning against hypocrisy. 
Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. He says to them, you have a a clean outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is, is filthy. Is your heart real before God? Do you go before him daily and ask him to search your heart and to search your soul and to search your life? Because let me tell you, the hypocrite does not want his heart searched. He would die rather than to confess his disease. He will hold on to the disease of his heart even though it leads him to hell. It's a warning for us all to have open hearts before the Lord daily to believe and repent. For what? What does it mean for you to be an adequately trained disciple? To be an adequately trained disciple means you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, and that you are willing to say, search me and try me, and see if there is any wicked way within me. The Pharisees would never do that. They were always, always holding on to the error that would damn them. Andrew Bonner said, You know that a Christian is growing when he tells men of Christ, then of himself. And then there is this third application. I think this passage presents before us a call to prayer for your leaders and especially for your ministers. If you want in this church ministers and leaders who believe the gospel and who live out according to the gospel their lives, whose inside and outside more and more and more correspond so that we are truly holy men, then pray. Take us before the throne of grace and pray three things. Pray, first, that your ministers and leaders will live under the authority of this this word. This book. Pray secondly, that we will be motivated by integrity of heart. And pray thirdly, that we will have a desire to use our feeble gifts for the flock and that our gifts will be used powerfully by the Spirit of God. You see, I'm not speaking to you, I'm speaking to you. You see, we need the entire church to be upon her knees, praying for fidelity to the truth, inside and out. And so I call upon you to pray, and I ask you to shake off your lethargy if you are not doing it. And pray for now and for generations hence that this pulpit will be occupied by men who believe the truth and preach Christ. Because you see, there is such a thing as the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm asking you to ask God for the power of the Holy Spirit in our ministry. So every true believer, every true minister wants to use his gifts faithfully for Jesus. And there's a wonderful account of the minister's love for the truth and desire to serve in an old book called God's Terrible Voice in the City by an old Puritan minister whose name was Vincent. It was around the time of the London fire and the great plague in the 1660s in London. When the plague came to London, the multitudes were terror-stricken. So many were dying daily. And the false pastors were so terror-stricken as well 
that the false pastors fled the city and left the pulpits of the city unoccupied. So do you know what happened? The despised, persecuted Puritan ministers who had been cast out of their pulpits after the restoration of Charles II, these Puritan ministers came and filled the pulpits of the men who had abandoned their flocks. And these despised, persecuted Puritan ministers preached with all their heart. Graves were opening constantly to receive the inhabitants of London, and these men preached day and night, and they preached powerfully. And Vincent says, grim death seemed to stand at the side of the pulpit with its sharp arrow, saying, do thou shoot God's arrows, and I will shoot mine. The grave seemed to lie open at the foot of the pulpit. It is estimated that during this plague in London, 100,000 people died. 20% of the city's population. At one point, 1,000 a week. At another point, 2,000 a week. And then finally, 7,000 per week were dying. And so many came to the services held by these poor, despised Puritan ministers filling the pulpits of those who had fled their congregations. These ministers risking their own lives to preach the truth. So many came to services that the ministers sometimes had to climb over the pews in order to get into the pulpit. Hey, I'd like that. Crowd out the aisles. Let them sit here. Fine with me. I'll climb over in order to get into the pulpit. That's how eager they were to hear the truth. Eternity was the issue, my friend. Death and hell. And these true teachers used their gifts to proclaim salvation in Christ. Now, even without the plague, isn't this the issue, even at this very moment? That our hearts are plagued with sin, if not with bubonic plague in the body. Our hearts are plagued with sin, and we must face the reality of death and eternity. And the essential issues regarding the soul are the same. It would be inexcusable if I did not use my feeble gifts to point you to the only Savior and call you as I do now to put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Because the grave is still at the foot of this pulpit. And the saddest way to hell is sitting in a church pew having heard the word of God over and over and over. But only then can I be a faithful minister of Christ when I call you to believe in Christ and to repent. Only then will I be a faithful minister of Christ. And I ask you, I call upon you, I plead that you hear this earnest cry. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee to Christ for refuge. And God's people said,